just knowing that there was a Eugene in the world who was being Eugene and being as faithful as he knew and didn't feel like he needed to fit within the paradigms as they were handed or the polarities that he was just going to be as faithful as he knew to the scripture and the people that he was to pastor and be with gave me some hope that it was okay for me to do the same. Welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthardt, and I'm on staff, along with others, at Wellspring. Our desire and mission at Wellspring is to help people rediscover God's personal, generous, abundant love and the joy-filled and flourishing life offered to us in the kingdom of God. In this podcast, we engage in thoughtful conversations about our inner life and the care of souls, ours and others. I'm very excited about today's conversation. Today, I get to sit down with Wynn Collier, who is the author of the biography of Eugene Peterson, Burning in My Bones. But first, a bit about Wynn. Wynn is director of the Eugene Peterson Center and associate professor of pastoral theology and Christian imagination at Western Seminary in Michigan. He's been a pastor for over 25 years, an author of five books, and also the director and founder of The Genesis Project, a community providing circles of friendship and contemplation for pastors and writers. So we'll hear a little bit today about Wynn's own upbringing and journey and pastoring, and then about his friendship and subsequent writing of Eugene Peterson's biography and story. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Collier, thank you so much for making time today to uh, have a conversation with us. I'm really appreciative of it and and really loving the book uh, that you've written, the biography of Eugene Peterson. And we'll certainly get into that in just a moment. But I wanted to get to know you a little bit, if we could here today. Um, so, uh, Wynn, tell us a little bit your, about yourself. Where did you grow up and, and what was your upbringing like? Well, I'm a Texan. Mm. I've, um, I've, uh, lived in a lot of different places since then. I've been told that I've lost a lot of my Texas draw. I'm not sure, but I don't, uh, I don't Texan. hear it. You don't. Okay. Where in Texas? Um, Waco. Okay. Yeah. I was actually born in Garland, which is right outside of Dallas. Sure. I lived in Mesquite. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, well, my, uh, my dad, for about seven years was a, a, a traveling evangelist. So mm. we would have a fifth wheel trailer and go from town to town, church to church, Sunday morning to Friday night. Um, so that was interspersed there, but, but Texas was always where we came back home to as, as our landing spot. And um, so in sixth grade, my dad became a pastor in Waco, Texas, and I was there then until I went to seminary and, and then got married, but grew up, so grew up in a pastor's home, survived that and, um, went to college and seminary and, and then, um, became a pastor out of seminary and uh, was in Florida for a few years and then moved to Colorado for my wife to go to grad school. And that's actually where I first encountered Eugene. 
Okay. Well, it's, I, I wouldn't mind backing up for just a, a little bit. I'm curious. So you said your dad was a traveling evangelist. So what was that like for you as a, as a young uh, a boy, I, it sounds like, to uh, be part of that? And I mean, I, I almost picture you accepting Jesus into your heart many times, or is that <laughs> maybe projecting my own, my own childhood onto you? Yeah. Well, um, I did hear the same sermons over and over again. And my dad would often joke that if he ever killed over with a heart attack in the middle of a sermon that I could just pop up behind the, the pulpit and could finish for him. And there probably was some truth to that. And um, so um, it was, I mean, in one hand, it was marvelous. It was adventurous. I mean, I got to travel all over the United States. It was the only life I knew really. Hmm. Um, so we would, pack up the trailer on Friday night, pull out of a, a town and drive three to four hours, park in a Kmart parking lot somewhere and, and get up the next morning and Saturday morning. And my favorite thing was to ride in the front of the truck with my dad while the sun was coming up. My mom and sister would usually be in the trailer still asleep. My dad pulling, pulling the trailer behind us. And, um, he would let me keep my eyes peeled out for a, uh, a Shoney's. I don't know what it's, uh, sure. some places it's, some places it's called a big boy or Fritch's, you know? Yeah. And, uh, we would pull over and have a breakfast buffet. So that was one of my favorite things, you know, but it was really, um, as far as family life, it was quite beautiful. It was, um, we were very close. I got to see most of the United States. Um, it was, uh, it was a remarkable way to be a boy growing up. Yeah. And what, during those years, what was your spiritual life like? What was your view of God? Because you saw, you know, ministry in a, in a unique way from a very early age. What was that like for you? Yeah, I think, um, I think there was, um, I mean, God was very real. God was very much in front of us, um, God was very active. Um, I think, uh, in some ways I probably, as a young child saw God in some transactional ways, you know, you do the right things and, and then God likes you and blesses you, or you do the wrong things and God doesn't like you and, mm -hmm. and, uh, gets angry with you. Um, some of those things I had to work, work through, but, um, yeah, I think there was, I got exposed to lots of different people and lots of different places and lots of different um, personalities and all of that still shows up every once in a while when I'm, I'm writing or, or telling a story and, and all of a sudden this sort of memory or experience will, will come to mind. And so it's uh, a lot of, a lot of material there. That's yeah. Very rich. Very rich. What did you imagine that you would go into ministry? Was that like your ambition as a, as a young man? Is that what you thought you were headed towards? Uh, at first, yes. And then no. Um, so in, in the tradition that I was a child in, there was, a, there was a lot of, uh, momentum and energy spent, um, uh, for, for young men particularly to be called into the ministry. And so I think when I was maybe seven or eight years old, I said that I was called into the ministry. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know. Um, and then I think there was another season in my life where I felt a lot of pressure and expectation because I was, um, 
my dad was a pastor. There's a lot of, um, there was a lot of uh, sort of pressure to, to be, take on that mantle. And I resisted that internally at least because I, I didn't want to do that just because it was expected of me. But um, particularly when I got into college, I don't know. I just found myself drawn to, um, to this story of, of Jesus and wanting to be part of um, telling others this story. And so mm. I, don't, I never had like an epiphany where I'm like, oh, yes, I know that I'm, it, I'm called to this. It just was something that I found my way into. And then it seemed obvious to me looking back that it had been, it had been God guiding me all along. Yeah. And so you end up going into vocational ministry, you're pastoring, you said, and then you end up in Colorado. You said that's where you're, and you're pastoring a church there. Yes. I was a bivocational pastor. It was a, a very small church that had been through lots of struggles. And we arrived there for my wife to go to grad school in Denver. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know for sure what I was going to do or how I was going to pay the bills. So, um, uh, I became a, a stockbroker at Charles Schwab and a bivocational pastor at this at this small church. Wow, that's a that's a I don't know a great a kind of interesting juxtaposition, I suppose. Um, I mean, people <laughs> think stockbroker and they think, oh, wow, these guys make all kinds of money, but that's not, that's not always the case, right? <laughs> no, no, this wasn't that kind of stockbroker job. It was more working in a call center and answering phones and uh, helping entry-level investors, yeah. Tell us how you and uh, you get introduced to Eugene Peterson then in terms of his his writing and, and his work. So this would have been 99 and uh, a pastor, I'm not, a, I was the pastor at this church in Denver and one of the elders of the church came up to me um, on a Sunday after the service and handed me a copy of uh, Eugene's Working the Angles, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity, which is one of his pastoral theology books. And, and he handed it to me and he said, I think you'll like this. And, uh, and I realized later he meant, I think you need this. <laughs> and uh, so I just began to read it and it, it was, it just pierced me immediately. And it was as if something inside me just opened up and he began to describe the pastoral life and pastoral convictions in ways that my heart was so ready for. And so I just began to drink, drink it in. And a couple of years later, my first book was being published by Nav Press who had published the message. And I got one of their, um, one of their editors to give me Eugene's address and I began to write him letters and he just threw letters over the coming decade and a half just became something of a pastor to me. Wow. What was it if I can go back to the reading is you reading working the angles do you remember what what it was kind of more specifically that spoke to you or what it was that was just grabbing your heart at that time. Well. I just reached up into my, my bookshelf to grab to grab a copy of it. Um, I think I think it was something about the the invitation to to um, to be someone who genuinely 
hears from God and and expects to be someone who's helping to draw others into God's story, the true story, the the wide story. Um, I mean, you know, page two, here's a paragraph. Well, I should pause and say um, the church I was at had been through multiple splits. They were really struggling. It would probably only be, would be within the next year that I would recommend to the church leadership that the church fold. Okay. And here I was, you know, 20 something pastor in way over my head. This is, you know, right in the, right in the, the dead center of the explosion of the church growth, um, mega church stuff all's happening. And, and I'm, and I'm trying to envision all these grand plans for how this, this church is going to turn around, right. And become something significant for God as if they hadn't already been significant in God's. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I'm carrying all this idealism, all this language, all these theories and metaphors for what the church is to be and the church is to do. Um, and some of that probably had to do, well, some of that came from a good place. I wanted to, I wanted to help people encounter Jesus. Some of it came from my own idealism and wanting to succeed. And some of it came from feeling the pressure that I, you know, my identity rested on whether or not this church was able to turn around or not. And then I read something like this. Um, The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility in the community. The pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. It is this responsibility that is being abandoned in spades. Mm. And I read that and... I think I saw my own story that um, I remember being in a, um, a meeting I'd called together all of our church leaders and, and active, active people in the congregation for this. I chagrin to say it now. I think I called it a visioneering meeting. Um, uh, I was picking up this language, right. And I had PowerPoint and, was talking through our values and what we were going to be about. And I remember one of the younger leaders in the church raised his hand um, in a very tender way, asked a question and said, um, I noticed that no, nowhere in any of these values is prayer. Hmm. Um, are, are we going to pray? And, <laughs> and wow. I, you know, I stumbled around and, I think I said something about, well, yeah, prayer undergirds it all, um, which is true. But I think the reality was there was there was a um, a posture in me that wasn't truly reckoning with the fact that the fundamental need of our church was not to come up with a new mission statement or vision plan or retool ourselves or get better music or better lighting or you know, find the next program that was going to somehow catapult us into massive growth that 
whether we survived as a church or not, what was most needed was a hearts and minds and imaginations to be filled with the presence and life of God. And mm. so that's another way of talking about what we mean when we say prayer. And so I think I was, I was challenged. I was, um, but more than just challenged, I think I was ready to hear it. I think, I think my heart learned, yearned for it. I think I knew on some deep way that this other stuff wasn't true, that it was, uh, that it was a glittering gold, uh, that was yeah. fool's gold. And yeah. so, yeah. Boy, I just, you know, even though that was a number of years ago, it just seems even more true today as we survey the ministry and church landscape. And I just am struck by, I wonder how many that will listen to this would might find themselves in a similar kind of space. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to dream big dreams for God and even have part of that come from a good and even holy place in us, but how easily it gets all tangled up, it seems like, in our own ambition, our own desire to build something, make something, do something significant. I'm struck by, though, too, you said at the same time, because so writing was already in you, too, because you said a book of yours was was being published. What, what was that? What led you to write at that time? Well, um, the, the book was actually several years later when we moved to South Carolina. Okay. Um, but I was always writing. Um, I from the time I was a little boy, I just wanted to write stories. My mom gave me a, an old typewriter. It was one of those 1950s Sanger traveling salesman typewriters that like fits in this little metal case. I don't know if you've seen those, but I have, yeah, my mom gave me one, which even then makes me wonder like what she saw, like what, what, maybe she would just give it to me as a cheap toy. I don't know, but I, I feel like there was something more. <laughs> hmm. And she gave me a pack of the, the old onion skin typewriter paper. And I immediately began to write my autobiography. So I was third, fourth grade. And There's a lot in I, there. I'm telling you, it was, it was called My Life. Uh, <laughs> I got about half a page in and I ran out of material. And, <laughs> well, that's fair. So, I mean, you know, although yeah. you, had tra you, had, you did have extensive travel history by that time. That's right. I should have made it a travel log and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think about that. It just, yeah. If, that if instinct in you. Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Clearly though, that impulse, that instinct in you to express yourself in this way. So that was, that was in you. I, I, I'm curious though, too, you said, you know, I get this book published by Nat Press and then I'm, and then you had been reading Eugene's work and then what, uh, what made you want to reach out to him personally? just because of how much he had kind of spoken to you through his writing? Yeah. You know, I've kind of always been like that a little bit. If there's somebody that just really penetrates my heart, I, I want to tell them or I want to, mm -hmm. uh, if possible, I want to meet them. Um, and I think there was, and there's only been a handful of people at this level, but I mean, I mean, Eugene would just, became such an important voice for me. Um, 
putting words to things I, I longed for, but just couldn't, hadn't known how to articulate. And his words rang so true to me that it became very formative. And so I, I wanted to interact with him. I, I'm so struck by that. At this point, Eugene had written uh, a fair amount already. Was he retired yet from from um, pastoral ministry when you began to, yes. to dialogue? Yes. So, but he uh, he he replied pretty quickly. It sounds like to your writing. He did. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And I probably thought it was original. You know, very unique of me to be having a um, letter letter relationship with with Eugene, you know, decades later, when I had literally thousands and thousands of letters in my cellar, I would realize I wasn't that unique. Really, he he corresponded with a lot of people. He did. Oh, yeah, massive amount. I don't know how he had got anything done, to be honest with you. And he never, never had an assistant. Wow. Wow. But so, I mean, without prying too much, can you tell us a little bit of what what the what those letters, what that correspondence was like, that what were you, were you seeking counsel? Were you sharing what was going on? What was, what was, what was that correspondence like? Yeah, I think it was, I just didn't really have a, a pastor in my life and I was looking for one and I'd had trouble finding a spiritual director. And so I just asked him the kind of questions I think a young pastor would ask an older pastor. Um, you know, theological questions, pastoral wisdom, personal um, personal struggles and wranglings. And I mean, I think there definitely were some, some letters where I was just trying to come up with something to, to say because <laughs> I wanted to keep the dialogue going, you know. Um, I just, I just wanted to have him as my pastor and I wanted to have that presence in my life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I find myself, yeah, listening, of course, and thinking, boy, yeah, boy, who wouldn't want Eugene Peterson as their pastor? I think, uh, what a what a gift! And so this correspondence went on for for years. It did. It wasn't it wasn't like every month. You know, it would there there'd be months between letters. But yeah, I would say, um, I'd have to go back and look in my letters to know for sure. I don't want to to speak, but I, I would say it went on for 12, 12 to 14 years. Wow. And at this time, you're, you're pastoring, you said now, and, um, uh, and what, what, tell us a little bit about that. What was that? And how did, how did Eugene speak into you as a pastor at this point? Yeah. So we were in South Carolina a few more years. I was pastor of a university church. And then in 2008, we moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, where I was helped, I was served as the, the forming pastor of a, a new church called All, All Souls. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I mean, it's probably hard to think about any part of my pastoral life that wasn't touched by Eugene. Um, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think I was a Eugene prototype. I mean, we were very different personalities and I didn't always see everything the way Eugene did. But when it, you come to sort of the, the deep heart of, of something, I think it, it would be hard pressed to find, you know, anything about my life as a pastor that somehow Eugene, 
Eugene's way and posture and didn't contribute to. So I think he gave me a lot of confidence in, in just being myself with God, not trying to be like another pastor, not trying to be like him. Gave me a lot of confidence that, um, well, maybe, maybe not always confidence, but at least um, encouragement to trust my instincts, particularly when all of the pressure around me was to go a different direction, you know, to things are in the early days fledgling along and you're wondering if you're going to make it. And there's the pressure to sort of buy into some sort of certain paradigm or, or take on some, uh, programmatic formulaic posture that seems to be all the rage at the moment. Um, you know, none of which are those things inherently wrong if they're true, but they weren't true for me. Um, and so I've sort of found myself oftentimes just being between worlds, being on the fringes of things, not quite knowing where I fit, feeling like the path that all souls was to take was not, uh, was somewhat hard to describe, but only because it was so simple, <laughs> mm. you know, the simplicity, you know, people say, what's your church about? Like, well, um, this is going to sound really unique, but we're about God and, <laughs> and friendship and, um, loving our neighbors and like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But what are you really about? I'm like, well, that's really what we're about, you know? Um, and, uh, and it's some, at times feeling like it feels very irrelevant. Like it's, it's not the questions people are asking. It's not the answers mm. people are, are insisting you give them. Um, but just feeling, con feeling convinced that this is the way, this is the way I'm to be and lead and not, not even to say necessarily that every pastor is to be that way. But if I'm going to be true to who God made me to be, then I have to be faithful to those, um, those inklings and, and just knowing that there was a Eugene in the world who was being Eugene and being as faithful as he knew and didn't feel like he needed to fit within the paradigms as they were handed or the polarities that he was just going to be as faithful as he knew to the scripture and the people that he was to pastor and be with gave me some hope that it was okay for me to do the same. I mean, what it sounds to me like when is I just uh, the word integrity comes to mind to the and integrity we often seem to think of as, you know, character integrity, which uh, certainly is is important. Um, but but like you keep saying it true integrity, in, integrous to who you are, to who God's made you to be and to what he's given you to do and the and the courage uh, to do that and as well as the freedom to live in that. It sounds like there was a lot of that that was being encouraged in you. Yeah. I mean, I have to be real honest and say it. It's not like every day I woke up just, you know, comfortable in my skin. And I mean, there were definitely times where I'd have a lot of anxiety in a certain season because um, uh, I didn't know if something was going to work and even it working wasn't the point and, mm. and feeling a lot of pressure to, come up with, you know, 
particularly in a new, a new church, and you know about this, but as you, as you move from one sort of season to another and you're growing and developing, and sometimes the, the structure or family systems that you have don't work anymore, and there could be this pressure to immediately turn to um, paradigms and systems and psychologies that are not necessarily wrong, but they aren't rooted in the story of God's action. They're not rooted in what it means to be a community following in the story of Jesus. And that those things are inherently human and relational and they can't be mapped out on a whiteboard very well. And, and yet there's all this pressure to become sustainable and viable and reproducible. And, you know, all this language that somehow even words like mission, you know, missional and, and all of a sudden these things that are beautiful become um, tinker toys and they have nothing to do with gospel. They have nothing to do with the living Christ and the, the attentiveness to each person that's in front of you. And instead you start thinking about who the church is to become instead of who the church actually is and, and all these kind of pressures. And so, you know, I would feel anxieties about all those things, but inevitably, inevitably I would, um, I would remember, you know, I'd return to the wise voices. I would return to the, the, the interior um, voice of Christ, to the, the way of the spirit, to, to mentors like Eugene. And I would, I would think, you know what? I, I don't know all the answers. I don't know that what I'm doing is even exactly right, but I'm following the scent. And at, at the core, I think we're headed in the right direction. And I'm just going to, we're just going to keep walking this way. And um, so. That's such yeah. So helpful. I think just speaks of 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 uh, wisdom and and that many listening to this, I think maybe need to hear that, you know, because they too, we we all do. I think if we're honest, as as leaders, pastors, others, to struggle with self doubt, uncertainty, and and am I following the right way? Am I doing this right? Um, and if we're taking our calling seriously, it ought to give us great pause, uh, shouldn't it? Too that are we? Uh, is this really the way of Jesus? When there's so many competing voices for our attention and um, and allegiance, even I, I'm curious about something that you know, as you talked about, Eugene was so in many ways countercultural to the you know the more popular and even at times um, louder voices in the church and. Uh, that, you know, he was, I guess you could say in, in his day, in many ways, swimming upstream, um, or maybe sometimes it felt like even a, in a, diff- a different stream altogether um, than, than the church around him. And yet at the same time became a very, um, in his own way, very known and influential um, person and even figure in the church. What do you attribute that to? probably to a number of things. I mean, I think fundamentally it's just grace. I mean, Hmm. I think Eugene was as bewildered as most anyone, you know, like, because honestly, I'm not sure that he thought a lot of people were actually really listening to him. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't want to oversay that. I'm not sure exactly how to explain that, but I, I just, I do feel like 
you know, sometimes he would go to some huge conference and, you know, people sort of flocking around him. And I think he would walk away feeling quite alone, actually. Um, like, I'm not sure they're really hearing what I'm really saying. <laughs> um, so there's some of that. Um, that they just kind of so, liked because he became popular, because they liked his writing or something. I don't, I'm not exactly 100% sure. I just, hmm. I think he was so, so averse to celebrity mm-hmm. that anytime it started seeming like he was a celebrity, something in his interior just said, there's something not right here. Like something's incongruent. He, one of his favorite words was congruent. And when something was mm-hmm. incongruent, it just made him really pause. Um, so, so some of it I would just say is grace. Like Eugene didn't make it happen. And it's kind of like church growth. He, you know, maybe a little tongue in cheek. He said, you know, most church growth is uh, 20% God and 80% being in the right place at the right time. You know, so we, we sure. make a whole lot out of it, way more of it than he thinks is true, you know? And so I think he probably would say the same thing about, about him. Like, I don't know. I just, it, it's one of those mysteries of grace, right? Um, hmm. I think there's another part of it though, is I think in an age when we are truly bereft of these genuine rooted slow wise sages i mean the kind of the kind of um people in our life the women and men that would have just been part of the infrastructure of our family or part of the the uh the village elders you know um they they just would have been woven into our life but in the modern world, things have just been fragmented to such an extent that we don't have these voices in our life. Mm-hmm. And I think as pastors, I'll say, um, I think a lot of us deep in our heart know that a lot of the things we're reading, thinking, feeling the pressure to do and be is BS. <laughs> we may not say it, but I think we know it. Um, but we don't know what to do with it because we're not sure what else we're supposed to do. And I think there was something about Eugene. I mean, he wasn't a very good speaker. Um, he, he, when you're talking with him, there could be great gaffes of silence. It, he wasn't the kind of compelling, magnanimous, big personality, but there was something that was, had been so transformed in his heart that he became a different kind of person in the world. And he had some kind of integrity of being that allowed him to maintain that in circumstances that seemed very much at odds. And I think a lot of us just on a soul level, we saw that we, we recognized it and it was different than hero worship because there wasn't a lot about him that was like, you know, had this aura. It was something deeper. And I think it was just, it was just something that our soul responded to because we're so hungry for it. Um, Mm. And it's why Eugene could say things sometimes that nobody else would get away with saying, because we, most of us just knew he didn't have an agenda. He wasn't trying to build a platform. He was trying to be as faithful as he knew and, and we could hear it. It's interesting too, because, you know, well, one, I, I just so many thoughts go through my mind. One is there was that um, you write about 
in the book, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the man, but this, when he was um, even kind of adrift himself as a young man in college uh, years, I believe specifically, and he, he wasn't finding it any real spiritual help with the pastor of the church, but there was just this older sage that someone Ruben. connected to him, Reuben. Yeah. And that, that, that Reuben and, 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 you know, in some ways it really marked his life. It gave him a picture of, of that kind of wisdom. It seems like. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. That was his first spiritual director. He would say. Hmm. Yeah. And I wonder too, what, what part it played. I mean, it was speculative, but just, you know, Eugene didn't get, if you will, famous or as known, you know, really early at a young, really young age. I mean, he had, he had been pastoring and writing for many years before many people really knew much about him. And, and so, yeah, he just had, had had opportunity to develop lived wisdom and, um, yeah, there's something about that too. I wonder, um, in terms of, uh, you know, just not being known, at least for for a good while. Yeah, and I think he he had tasted the poison, and that's why he became such a voice. You know, um, he was so concerned about ambition among pastoral ranks, not because, you know, he just detested ambition and never had experienced it. It was because precisely because he knew ambition and the evil it could wreck in the human heart and how it could destroy the pastoral witness. And, and so he recognized that. And, and so over decades, he, through the, through the Holy spirit had, developed this interior communion with God that was transformative. He was becoming a new kind of human. And I think then at, at the age when he was becoming known, like he had built this huge bulwark of grace and, and faith and, and a deep, deep conviction about who he was and who he was not. And had a deep sense of danger in the church. And at the same time, it doesn't mean that he was never um, seduced. He, he left Regent and it was during his time at Regent when he became really just in the, in the Christian world, a household name. And, um, and he left Regent in part because he was becoming a celebrity and he thought his mortal soul was in danger. Wow. And so it was this active resistance. Um, I can't tell you how many large conferences and speaking engagements he didn't go to um, mm. precisely because those weren't the spaces where he felt he had something to give. Um, and, but I'll tell you what he did enjoy speaking at. He enjoyed speaking at friends of his ordination services. He loved oh, that. Really? Um, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Well, um, it's kind of what you'd expect, I guess, that he felt like oftentimes the big stage, you know, we, we, you know, in certain circles, leadership circles, we would say, well, that's where he was leveraging his leadership capacity, right? Um, being, being a good steward, 
uh, maybe somebody would a little more th- theological uh, dexterity would say, you know, going and speaking to, to 7,000 people at a, this name, this leadership conference. But to him, again, it's all relational. And he was just suspect, you know, um, wasn't, he wasn't at all convinced that those, those spaces were worth all the energy and time that we give to them. But if you're talking about someone that he had taught, someone that he had been a pastor to, and they were answering the call of ordination, you know, to go and be present as hands are laid on this one person. And the community is recognizing God's call on their life and gathering around him and to speak a word from the living scriptures as a charge to that one person that he knows their story. I mean, that's a different thing. That's, that's always worthwhile. Hmm. It's so particular and that would be so much Eugene too. the, the gospel and, and the church is meant to be so geographically and personally particular, isn't it? Um, Yeah, that's right. hmm. So, uh, you know, I want to watch uh, your time in all this, and I really appreciate you giving this space to us. But if you were kind of jumping ahead here, how did it come about that you ended up writing the biography of Eugene Peterson? Um, In fall of 2016, I was in Montana on a pastoral retreat, and I went to the, the Flathead Lake and spent some time with Eugene and Jan, and I assumed to be the last time I would see them because he was really drawing the circle in close and leaving there, I began to think about how somebody was going to write his story. And I started thinking about how I hoped someone would imbibe Eugene and, and, and let people actually encounter Eugene versus just a recounting of stories and facts. And Mm. I told one of my best friends who is an editor and he said, well, you should tell Eugene. And I thought, the last thing Eugene wants is a biography written about him. And my friend said, well, that's true. He knew Eugene as well, but um, you'd, you'd probably regret if you never even told him. So I wrote Eugene a letter. He called me a couple of weeks later. He said, let's talk about this. So I d- basically described my thoughts again. And he said, I, I asked him, I said, um, does this make you tired or does this give you energy? And he said, when it makes me tired. And <laughs> I said, that's what I would have thought. And I assumed the conversation went in, but for some reason we kept talking. And about 10 minutes later, he said, when I think I have energy now, I think you're supposed to do this. So he just, he and Jan invited me into their life. I spent lots of time with them at the lake and interviewed scores of people and lugged thousands of pounds of paper journals and letters and such back to Virginia and got to writing. Wow. How long did the process, this process take? I mean, cause it's, it's quite an undertaking. Yeah. Probably th- three and a half, three and a half to four years. Wow. Wow. What can I ask you? What was for you? I mean, I'm sure besides the, you know, the, joy of the relationship, what was most rewarding or significant to you, even in the writing of this book? Probably was some occasions where I got to read some lines in his journals that 
he probably never expected another person to read. Hmm. And I even felt a little awkward about that at times, but just encountering the unfiltered spaces of his heart, his longing for God, his words to God. Um, I think recognizing in the reading that while he was far from perfect and, you know, in the biography, we don't shy away from his flaws, but at the same time, he was, he was who we thought he was, you know, I mean, there's always that fear that you get to look behind the curtain and you discover that as we are so often these days, that the person, the public person is not the private person. And just to realize, yeah, I mean, he was an imperfect human, but he was pointed Godward Hmm. and, and there was something rich and alive and deep and unshakable in that, in that, um, in that communion. And it gave me, you know, I'm not like that. I don't, I, I, I think Eugene knew God in ways that I'm not sure this side of, um, the final story that I will know God. I mean, I hope to, but my hunch is it's just, there's, there's some graces there that he encountered that I'm not sure I will, but it gives me immense hope knowing that that exists in the world, Mm. that, that there is someone who is deeply holy and deeply human at the same time that neither one of those things get the short shrift and, um, that that he was he was that person in the world well in your your writing uh about eugene is is such a gift too because you do portray him i think with such not just with kindness but also with fairness and like you said not too um not to be a hagiography, but to be true to to this person that it has been and and, and will continue to be a tremendous gift to uh, to people in general. I, I want to shift just for a moment, if we can, to you know the message, which is now probably what in, a, in the wider you know conversation it would be mo- most people would know Eugene for was not something he initially even set out to to write. That wasn't his original intent, was to create a, a new Bible translation, right? Um, how did he feel about about it? Is it, you know, is it happened and then it and then it took off? How did that affect him? Yeah, it was written, you know, it was written, first of all, uh, with him starting in Galatians for his little Sunday school class he was teaching because they were bored out of their mind with this book that he thought was electric. And he thought, man, maybe I should try to translate some of this so they can catch up what's, what's actually happening in the text. And, and people just ate it up and on off it went, you know? So I think it's actually important to remember that when he was translating, he wasn't first translating for the world or for America. He was translating for these little group of people that were part of his Mm -hmm. life that he was pastor to. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, it was a very long process. It took, it took a long time to write, to write the, the, they did the new Testament first and then they came right. back and did the old Testament. And, um, and I, he would say, you know, even to his, his final 
final year. I mean, he would say this, the message is not my book in the way that other books are. Like I was just carried along and this is, you know, I think he, he was thankful for the message. I think he was grateful that he had gotten to do it, that it was so well received, but he had a very easy, like he didn't hold on to it tightly. Hmm. He didn't assume that it was, you know, that it was something that was timeless. Um, it was written in a specific moment for a specific reason. And then he just let it go. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't feel like it was something he had to guard and protect. He got annoyed by some of the criticisms um, <laughs> about the message, particularly when he felt like people didn't understand what they were talking about. Like that they, they didn't understand what he was doing and didn't understand, frankly, at times, just frankly didn't understand the way language works, at least, <laughs> at least um, didn't give him the credit that he understood the way language works. Not that, not that all scholars agreed with him by any stretch, but it, he wasn't just making stuff up. Like he was trained by some of the world's most renowned Semitic scholars and had a very strong sense of, of how, of how translation works, et cetera. And people are fine to disagree with him and he, he could handle that, but he didn't, what he didn't like was when people sort of made lots of assumptions and didn't understand what he was up to. Well, when uh, I'll ask, one more question of you, if I can, it's when we ask uh, all our guests, and that is, is you yourself look out on the particularly pastoral and ministry landscape these days, where are you finding signs of hope or encouragement? I think in pastoral faithfulness of pastors loving people immediately around them, pastoring through probably the most difficult time I think we will know in our generation. And I find hope in every place where there's truth telling, where people with full hearts, not trying to guard anything or hold on to anything. We're, we want the spirit of God to ravish us and us new and form us. And there's nothing to be afraid of. Lay down our idols. We can lay down our, and we can be free. Wow. What a great word. And thank you. Well, thank you so much, Wynn, for taking time today to be with us. I highly recommend uh, a Burning in My Bones a biography of Eugene Peterson. And Wynn, you've just given uh, all of us a gift, even in this, not only this book, but just a little more of this conversation today. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation. If you found it helpful, feel free to share this podcast with others and subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you found us, and give us a rating. We'd really appreciate that as well. Again, if we can serve you as part of Wellspring, we are here to serve the church, both as leaders and people in whatever ways we can. So go to wellspringca.org to see what resources we have to offer and how you can be served by them. Go to our Facebook page, just search Wellspring on Facebook and you'll see lots of resources there as well. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, grace and peace.